You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. War erupted in Europe, and Germany attacked France. While the United States was officially neutral and worked hard to stop American companies from helping both belligerents, there was no doubt where most Americans and where the American president stood. They wanted Germany to win. It was 1870, the second year of Grant's term, and the Franco-Prussian War had broken out in Europe. The French were not President Grant's favorite people. During the Civil War, when Grant was commanding U.S. forces, the French had not only supported the Confederacy through a loan, they bought their cotton bonds, which kept the Confederacy going. Grant's anger was aimed not so much at the French people, but at their leader, Louis Napoleon. Napoleon sent troops to Mexico on our border. At the same time, Prussians were buying U.S. war bonds, northern war bonds, and supporting the Union. France should not be surprised if Americans are sympathetic to Prussia, President Grant said. That hostile broadside was never relayed to the French, as Grant had instructed his Secretary of State. In any case, the war with Bismarck's newly confederated Germany would last only seven weeks and would find Germans surrounding Paris, and the French were forced to give up lands, a slight they would not soon forget. This was one of the many events of foreign policy that President Grant would deal with in the second year of his presidency with his Secretary of State, Hamilton Fish. We were often told the U.S. wasn't a world player in events back then. But it was to an extent. The U.S. negotiated a deal along with the British, who were the main party to the agreement between Germany and France ending the Franco-Prussian War. But the support of the United States was crucial to both parties, and both parties sought it. The war between European nations increased the need for U.S.-British relations. And at the end of 1870... Grant would go on to negotiate the claims called the Alabama Claims, claims of damage to American shipping from British-built vessels during the Civil War. Grant would see domestic accomplishments in his second year. The income tax instituted by Lincoln was lowered. The 15th Amendment gave black men the right to vote. In Virginia, after five years of occupation, civilian control was restored. In Georgia, black legislators were kicked out of the state capitol. Grant's administration achieved a tariff act, which made 130 items free. It reflected a new kind of thinking on tariff policy, the kitchen table tariff, that is. Raise the tariff on the items you can, but lower them on the kitchen table items, tea, coffee, sugar. But 1870 also saw Grant's foreign policy ripped by an attack from his own party. Charles Shumner, radical Massachusetts senator, became a critic of the policies of the Grant administration, an increasingly a rival. 
a treaty to acquire or the island nation of Santo Domingo, now the Dominican Republic, was rejected by the Senate with Sumner's support. Grant's friend and attorney general was rejected by the Senate in his bid to become Supreme Court Justice. And so went Grant's year of 1870. The second year of presidents are interesting to study. The president is more established, more used to an office that there's no training for. But the president also has lost that honeymoon appeal, the newness of a chief magistrate fresh from a mandate of the people. The opposing party is no longer stunned off balance if they ever were, and opposition in the president's own party can often start to find their legs. March 1982 saw the Ivy League computer war game. The first nuclear war game conducted in the White House since Eisenhower, projecting a Soviet attack. Reagan did not play. That would, even in a game, be something that a president would not do for national security reasons. No one wanted to telegraph what a chief executive might decide. Nixon's former Secretary of State, William Rogers, played the part of the president in the Ivy League war game. Did not go well. Soviets attacked Korea and Europe. William Rogers, acting as president, responded with conventional forces. The Soviets, controlled by the Ivy League computer system, decided to use small nuclear weapons to destroy our Navy and armored units, giving them an advantage in conventional war. President Rogers retaliated with tactical nuclear weapons at the commander level. The Soviets responded with an attack on Washington. The, quote, president was killed, but the vice president led us to victory. So said the computer game. The simulation emphasized nothing more than the fixation of Reagan's White House on Soviet nuclear domination, trying to win the arms race, pushing the envelope. We've got them on the ropes, he told Howard Baker, Senate Majority Leader. President Reagan's first year was political blitzkrieg in action. He got his tax cut and put the opposition on the defensive, charmed the media and the Washington establishment too. In 1982, as recession continued and unemployment went to 10%, as the deficit numbers did not go down as projected, the media declared an end to Reaganomics. Unable to muster the same coalition to push through a budget that he had in 1981, Reagan had to cut a deal. He had Vice President George Bush, James Baker, and his budget director Richard Darman meet with Speaker Tip O'Neill in secret. O'Neill was wary, but didn't want to seem non-cooperative. In the end, the two sides would agree to a tax increase, or more called a revenue enhancement increase, to cover the deficit of $99 billion. Gas taxes, cigarette taxes, business taxes, loss of certain deductions. O'Neill made Reagan get Republican votes before committing his Democratic lawmakers. And then the event that often describes the second year of presidents and makes it a tough one was the midterms, the midterms of 1982. Republicans were set to gain off Speaker O'Neill's obstructionism. His image was attached to Democratic candidates in TV ads, and they even had an actor playing O'Neill in some of the ads. As he wrote in his memoir, Man of the House, it was Mr. Smooth against the old Paul. But in 1982, the old Paul won. Democrats won 26 seats in those midterms. The Reagan White House tried to be optimistic. The outcome, they said, was roughly as expected. But with Republican losses, with the economy a bit on the skids, 
No one believed the White House statement. They were more inclined to believe something that Reagan said into a microphone early on a radio interview when he didn't realize the mic was on. The country is in a hell of a mess. Call them the terrible twos. Maybe an exaggeration, but that second year seems to be when events reach a climax in a presidency. One president would get rebuffed. Another would take a strong stand against his opposition. And still another against his own party. A president would begin a new aggressive stance. Another would best an opponent. Still another president would be confronted with a rival for his office. The first second year of any presidency, of course, was 1790. And this was an odd one because it was only in George Washington's second year that he had his cabinet fully in place. It took some time for the offices of state, treasury, war, and the attorney general to be created by the Congress and the members selected and approved by the Senate, and then the long trip to Philadelphia, the capital at the time. But a fully stocked cabinet helped his government, but also caused problems. Differences emerged between Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, and James Madison, who, although he had been an architect of the Constitution with Hamilton, was now the leader of the House and had a different view on some issues, especially the issue of discrimination, the payment of bonds to Revolutionary War soldiers. Hamilton wanted the federal government to assume the debt of all the states and the federal debt that was, that was owed to Revolutionary War soldiers. The problem was many of the Revolutionary War soldiers had sold their debt, their bonds, for pennies in the dollar to speculators who assumed that some new national government would be able to profit from it. Madison wanted both entities to be paid, the original bondholders and the new speculators. Hamilton won that battle. But when he asked to appear before the House to deliver a report of the Treasury, the House said no. It would be a violation of separation of powers. 1789 was all about a glorious inaugural, a new government, pomp and ceremony. 1790 was reality. The nation had some issues. It was $54 million in debt, 11 of that to Dutch bankers. It still could not legally trade with the West Indies. And there were British forts on the border, no sign of any compromise from the mother country. Vancouver was thousands of miles away from the American capital of Philadelphia. The Spanish seized two British merchant ships there. When the British protested, the Spanish released the merchants, and the event seemed over. Certainly nothing that would affect the business of America. And this is the trouble of foreign policy in an age without instant communications. When the merchant got back to London, he said that his treatment was horrible, his camp was destroyed, and his crew was sent to Mexico and imprisoned. Citing the order of the Pope in 1493, the Spanish said that Vancouver belonged to them. British opinion was inflamed, and their war prime minister, William Pitt, prepared 63 ships of the line to go to North America and assert British control over Spain. Any such movement of a large quantity of ships, ostensibly to fight this war with Spain, could not be good news for the fledgling new country with no navy of its own. In fact, the peace that resulted was more dangerous perhaps. Threatened with war, Spain appealed to its ally France. But this was 1790, and France was weakened with a coming revolution and refused to support any foreign war. Spain backed down. 
Britain was now energized. At the same time, while England was respecting the treaty that ended the revolution and respecting this new independent nation, they had no problem exploiting differences within the new United States. Ethan Allen and his brother, who had been so successful fighting the British during the Revolutionary War and who had appealed to the U.S. Congress to create a new state of Vermont, were in London exploring an independent country of Vermont. But they weren't the only ones. Talks began between the Pitt government and separatists in Kentucky. When the U.S. representative to England, Governor Morris, came to resolve some of the standing issues, the closure of the West Indies, the forts on our American borders, he was met with demands for pre-war payments to merchants, debts that were owed before the United States became independent that were now unpaid. And even though it was the second year of the new government, the British sent us no ambassador. We had no true means of communicating with this country that was so important to our foreign policy. Even during the height of the Cold War, there was communication with the Kremlin. But in this case, the communication was just one way. 1790 could be said to be quite difficult for the Washington government. William Howard Taft's first year was no joy for him. And in his second year, his friend Archibald Butt would describe him as having a white-looking pallor and not at all healthy. Even Taft would admit in his diary, I have succeeded far less than other presidents. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. 
It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. What have been rumors in his first year in 1909 became reality in 1910, when the former president, Theodore Roosevelt, returned from a trip to Europe. He had been informed there of Taft's bunglings, and his leaning towards the conservative wing of the party. Republican Party in 1910 was split between progressives and conservatives. Despite an invitation, Theodore Roosevelt declined to meet Taft at the White House after his return from Europe. He did tell reporters, though, I am for Will's renomination and election. This did nothing to quiet the rumors. And Roosevelt, in fact, did find time to meet with progressive Republicans who felt they got the cold shoulder from Taft. A veritable Cold War began in the Republican Party around the country, centering on the biggest electoral prize at that time, the Convention of New York uh, State Republicans. New York was the largest state in terms of delegates and electoral votes in two years. Theodore Roosevelt met with Governor Charles Evan Hughes, well-respected by both factions of the party, conservatives and progressives. And he urged him to support a direct primary law. This would take the choice of candidates out of the hands of the bosses and reduce their power. Presumably, it was a good progressive step for the entire state, but it also meant these bosses couldn't weigh in on the choice of presidential candidate in 1912. Hughes was convinced to do it, and backed with a powerful name like Teddy Roosevelt, he attempted to get a direct primary in New York. Taft could see what was going on and told a friend, the prophet of the square deal, that being Roosevelt's signature phrase, is not playing fair with me. But Taft had his weapons too, and was also participating in this Cold War. He took Charles Evans Hughes out of the fight for a direct primary in New York, by appointing him to the Supreme Court. Then he did nothing as the political bosses in New York denied Theodore Roosevelt the temporary chairmanship of the New York State Republican Convention in 1910. Roosevelt, in response, announced a tour of 16 states across the nation. Odd for an ex-president with no political ambitions. He called for an estate tax, an income tax, workers' compensation. He attacked the Supreme Court for preventing social justice. This struck Taft, who was a supporter of the court and who would be a future chief justice. It was a lightning bolt out of the sky, Taft said. Roosevelt angered Taft so much that it was affecting his golf game. Caddies reported he wasn't playing as well as he had the prior year. And in one instance, he threw a club 25 yards, almost hitting the caddies. When the New York State Convention came, Roosevelt said he would beat his opponents to a frizzle. The old rough rider, former governor of New York, ex-president, had enough support to overcome the bosses and get himself named convention chair right at the convention. And the primaries of 1910 became a silent battle between Roosevelt and Taft. Roosevelt supported progressive candidates all over. Taft supported conservative Warren Harding for governor. He sent John Sherman, the vice president, to speak out against Robert La Follette, who was running in Wisconsin as a progressive Republican. He then, in Washington, made a speech urging Republicans to be loyal. They must not be disloyal. The results of the primaries were mixed. A progressive Walter Stubbs won in Kansas. Hiram Johnson, the progressive, won in California. But Warren Harding, who 
it was said, a vote for Harding is a vote for Taft, won as governor of Ohio. And he beat the progressive son of President Garfield, James Garfield Jr., in that year's race. A midterm defeat is a bad omen for a president. But in William Howard's Taft's case, the defeat that would meet him in the general election in the fall of 1910 was made slightly different by the unique circumstances of a president battling with a former president. For Taft and Roosevelt, it was a sword that cut both ways. When Republicans lost 41 seats, it was, as Taft said, it was, as Taft said, a tidal wave, a holocaust, and a cataclysm all in one. But many of the progressives who Roosevelt had supported and who had thus uh, been the nominees of the party had won their primaries, also lost to Democrats. And so both Taft and Teddy Roosevelt lost some after Democrats took the House in 1910. Well, we know at, at least what one president thought as his second year of his presidency would begin. Rutherford B. Hayes wrote in his diary about his first year. On the whole, the year's work has produced results. Peace, safety in the South to an extent not known for half a century. Civil service reforms. No nepotism. No removal from government, except for cause. In a state election in New Hampshire, a group of candidates who had run on the president's ticket in 1877 won their election. It encourages me, Hayes wrote in his diary. The former governor of Ohio was not in an easy situation. He was caught between two strong factions of his own party, the Roscoe Conkling, stalwart faction of New York, and that of James Blaine, a former Speaker of the House from Maine. He removed two men from the Custom House of New York, a patronage job, including future President Chester Arthur, while the Congress was on recess, something that angered many in his own party. Eventually, Senate would approve his appointments. That would not be until the next year. But nor was his own party Hayes' only problem. Since Grant's second term, Democrats controlled the House, and they launched an investigation into the president's title. Was it legitimate? Hayes had won in the disputed election of 1976. But thankfully for Hayes, the partisan investigation was criticized, and it ended a month later. In Hayes' second year, the Bland-Allison bill was passed. It remonetized silver. Silver was brought back into American currency and created what was called a buzzer dollar because of the eagle on the back of the coin. This was a compromise bill, however, because silver was extremely limited. Everyone advised Hayes to just simply approve what would be a compromise bill ending the squabbles, at least partially, between silverites and hard money folks. He has refused. I shall veto the bill, he wrote in his diary. As in many presidents' second years, Hayes' presidency, the Republican, Hayes' party, the Republican Party, would suffer losses in the 1878 midterms. Democrats already controlled the House. They would also gain the Senate. But something else would change. Opinion of Hayes' administration, of a man who sought only one term for the presidency, who governed on principle, would improve among the American people. The Republicans went from thinking they had no chance in 1880 to thinking they had a reasonable chance with a strong candidate. In May of 1970, 
Thousands of students descended upon Washington to protest the escalation of the war in Vietnam, bombings of Cambodia and Laos. The demonstrations in the nation's capital reflected demonstrations all across the country in college campuses. Boston University was shut down, as were 400 other colleges. Large protests and sit-ins were held at Princeton, Stanford, and University of Kansas. Guardsmen were sent to 21 campuses in 16 states to restore order. At Kent State, Ohio, four students were killed when soldiers opened fire after students pelted them with rocks. Now as the demonstrators came in on buses from all over the country to take their message to Nixon directly, Bud Crow was ready. Crow was in charge of what was called the war room within the White House, the effort to shield the White House, the president, at around 4.35 a.m. as students were arriving and as Crow settled down to begin his work. Imagine his shop when the unthinkable happened. Over the Secret Service PA system blared, Searchlight is on the lawn. Searchlight is on the lawn. Searchlight was the code name for President Nixon. And the President of the United States, leader of the free world, who the protesters were burning in effigy, wanted to go out and talk to them. Crow got in his car and followed Nixon and the Secret Service, eventually reaching him at the Lincoln Monument, where he saw President Nixon talking to about 8 to 10 startled students. I know you think I'm an SOB, he told the protesters. He asked one college student about how her college's football team was doing, only to be told that her college had been shut down. A man in an army jacket came by and said, I hope you realize we're willing to die for our beliefs. Not something Secret Service or a crow like to hear. But yes, Nixon responded, when I was your age, we were willing to die for what we believed in too. After some of this disjointed talk with the protesters too startled and unable to really understand, Nixon was ushered away. One of the students spoke to reporters the next day and said the president was out of it. Nixon wandered to the Capitol with his personal aide, where he gave a brief tour, and then he went to a cafe where he had coffee and hash. Nixon wasn't in great shape this the second year of his presidency in 1970, and the protesters honestly bothered him. More than anything else, insomnia plagued the 37th president. Like his predecessor, Vietnam plagued his presidency, and more specifically, the escalation of bombing into Cambodia would define the second year of Nixon's presidency. His approval rating, 51%. There was no end of sight in Southeast Asia. Nixon and Kissinger realized that the North Vietnamese saw no interest in peace talks. For them, the war would end when American troops left. Nixon sought to break the stalemate by bombing supply lines in Cambodia. But bombing was difficult, and so troops on the ground were needed in order to find and stop supply lines. This escalation was highly unpopular, and Nixon would face the most intense kind of student demonstration, students that were now experienced at demonstration with so many years of doing so. Nixon's party would lose seats in this 1970 midterm. But something else happened in 1970. A counter-protester movement. Carpenters carrying pipes and crowbars injured 70 protesters in New York City. And many of these carpenters started showing up at other protests. 
A book called The Real Majority, which Nixon read, was the political book of the year. It said that the middle of American politics was a 47-year-old housewife from Dayton, Ohio, who's married to a machinist. She's concerned about economics, concerned about jobs, but she was for law and order and respect and support for American troops fighting abroad. One newspaper went as far as to find a woman who was married to a machinist from Dayton, Ohio, who had almost these exact views. It was a lesson that Nixon would not forget, and it was aimed the future years of his presidency, his 72 election, at this kind of middle voter. You know, the whole terrible two thing is probably unfair. Not all two-year-olds are that bad. Sometimes it's three or four or one-year-olds that are, that are terrible to parents, right? So it is with presidencies. Franklin Roosevelt's second year was pretty good. Legislation and a new majority picked up in the midterm. George W. Bush consolidated gains, created Homeland Security, and won back the Senate and made gains President Kennedy bested Khrushchev and increased confidence about his control over foreign policy in the Cuban Missile Crisis and set the course for the American space race. But it does seem that at least more often than not, second year of presidency, the second year of the presidency is a bad one. Washington faced trouble with Britain, and Adams in his second year would face troubles with France. Lincoln would see a terrible year of war with no clear resolution and squabbles in his own party. George Bush Sr. would see an economic recession, and an Iraqi seizure of land from the U.S. ally of Kuwait on the Persian Gulf. Presidents have also sometimes, in their second year, developed the policies that would define their presidencies. We are not numerologists, and there's nothing in particular about year two that makes a presidency any more frightful than any other year. There's obviously three factors that become important in a presidency's second year. One is the loss of that honeymoon and that mandate. Two, the increase in confidence of the opposition, both the opposing party and opponents within a president's own party, if they exist. And three, the midterm elections. The idea that in the second year of a presidency, there will be an election that will test that presidency and how the president's done the election of a senator from the opposing party in a reliable democratic state can be considered for President Obama an early setback in his presidency's second year. Consequence of that election is that, at least so far, it looks like that there won't be an immediate passage of the Senate and House health care bill. We have yet to see a true rival within the president's party. But there has been some division. Liberals in the House want a very different health care plan than what Obama would be willing to support. And Howard Dean, the former leader of the party, has urged Democrats to vote against the plan of President Obama supports. There's a real challenge coming up for the president in midterms. Not only are midterm elections so historically indicated to have losses for the president's party that it's almost a question of how many seats a party will lose and not if they will lose seats. Midterm elections have two demographic problems for President Obama. One is that they usually have lower turnout. They will indeed have lower turnout. And President Obama was elected in a high turnout election. And the second is that midterm 
voters tend to be a bit older. Could change this year. Some of the new voters from 2008 could come back in 2010. But usually they're an older and in some cases more conservative type of voter. Now issues like Social Security and Medicare can be important in midterms and that's helped Democrats in the past. But in this year there's no serious issue with that. Older voters were the one weakness in the Obama electoral strategy of 2008, if you look at the demographics. It's the one area where Obama's a bit weaker than other Democrats had been. Confidence is building in the Republican Party. They've had momentum from the Brown win, but there's also some pitfalls for them. If they, if they don't play their cards right now, that they've been sort of put on par uh, with the president, by some members of the media anyway, We'll await and see what happens as we look at President Obama's own second year of his presidency and see if it will be a good year for him or a terrible too. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. The archive's available for $9.99. Now, that will be a price that's a limited time. I know I keep saying it, but there is going to be a point, maybe March, where we will raise the price slightly. It's a tremendous value for $9.99 to get everything that's recorded. Every time we uh, do a podcast, it's the, the archive gets more and more valuable. Uh, I mean, if you haven't been following the show since the beginning, I encourage you to go there. It's on the website at myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Facebook site, we've got some very robust discussions going on. Join there and feel free to comment. Also, feel free to start your own discussion group. I mean, I don't have to be involved in every uh, discussion. I sort of go in and out and watch what's going on there and a lot of interesting things happening there. I want to thank you for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.